Hey, I'm Morgan from Seattle. I'm Matt from Essex, Ontario. Hey, I'm Dan from Dayton, Mass. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Lisa Kudrow has a TV series called Web Therapy, and her character is self-centered, unpleasant, kind of nasty. I feel like if I was on Friends for 10 years, that there would be a part of me that was just like, from now on, all the things I make are people's enemies. (laughs) (laughs) I know. When I look at it objectively, it looks like that's what I've done, huh? It's Bullseye. This week, Lisa Kudrow, who played the dumb one on Friends, talks about her real-life career in brain science. Eric Andre deconstructs the talk show, and I mean that completely literally. Plus, I go on a hunt for the ultimate flea market find with American picker Danielle Colby. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by a few of our favorite culture critics to recommend things that are worth your time. This week, we're joined by Eric Adams, assistant TV editor of the AV Club, and Claire Zolke, a contributor to the AV Club and the proprietor of Zolke.com. Hey, Eric and Claire, how are you guys doing? Doing all right. Thanks, Jesse. Awesome. Now, summer is uh, basically a television wasteland, but uh, in an effort to guide you through it with a little bit of sustenance, uh, Eric and Claire have picked some summer TV shows that are worth watching. Eric, I, I have your recommendation here. It is this television program called Gravity Falls that airs Friday nights on the Disney Channel. Um, my concern is that we're recommending a television program on the Disney Channel, so perhaps you could allay my concerns. <laughs> well, you know, first of all, we're we're in the the dregs of summer, so it's it's just so hard to find new television to recommend to begin with. Uh, but I I wouldn't hesitate to recommend the show even if we were at the start of the new fall season. Uh, this isn't the typical Disney Channel show. This is not a multi-camera sitcom starring uh, Raven Simone or some other product of the Disney Channel machine. This is a, a uniquely skewed supernatural cartoon uh, focusing on a, a brother and sister pair who are sent out to the wilderness of Oregon for the summer to live with their uncle who runs a a tourist trap in the small and what they discover mysterious town of Gravity Falls. Is it on? It's on. It's on. Okay. Friday night, 9.30 p.m. I, Dipper Pines... And Mabel. And Mabel witnessed a creature which took a bite of my sock and ran into the closet. Are you sure it's even in there? (laughs) So you've described the program. You have not yet allayed any fears. Besides (laughs) Besides <laughs> disavowing any connection to Raven Simone, um, what makes the show so compelling? It's speaking from a place that hasn't been on television in a while, which is sort of this uh, 90s sense of atmospheric spookiness uh, that you would get from Twin Peaks or The X Files or uh, the short lived kids program Eerie Indiana. 
uh, you know, supernatural stuff for kids is always very intriguing to me. I grew up during the heyday of uh, of the Goosebumps series. It's stuff that's that's spooky, but it doesn't get into horror movie specifics, and it's not all about the grisliness. It's about the just sort of discovering this whole new world of monsters and Bigfoots and Wolfmans and Draculas. It also has a couple of really cool stars in Jason Ritter and Kristen Shaw. Yes, correct. The talent involved is enough to recommend it. Uh, Linda Cardellini from Freaks and Geeks is also a voice on the show. It, it feels to me like a, a gateway to future pop culture obsession. Claire, let's talk about the television program The Franchise. Uh, this is a um, reality show about baseball that follows a different baseball team each year. Um, you claim that the second season is better than the first season. I can't imagine that being the case because the first season focused on the world's most fascinating, greatest, and overall best baseball club, the San Francisco Giants. And the second season is about the boring old Miami Marlins. Seems like a horrible mistake on the part of the producers to me. Yeah, well, probably, but I'm probably a little bit biased. Uh, being a Chicago White Sox fan, I'm very excited that the uh, new season will follow the Marlins, who are uh, managed by Ozzie Guillen. Uh, but before that, I think Showtime just maybe dropped the ball in showing how interesting the Giants can be. Uh, the first season of the franchise largely focused on um, the most fascinating parts of baseball, which are injury, recovery, and time <laughs> at home with the family, uh, which everyone loves. Um, and there just weren't a lot of standout personalities that the show managed to pick up, aside from Brian Wilson, who was delightful and probably should have his own show. Uh, and the other issue is that um, a team coming off a World Series win is not that interesting because um, the stakes aren't very high. It's not likely that they're going to repeat. Um, the rest of the uh, MLB viewing uh, audience doesn't hope they repeat, and there's just not you know a lot going on. I think the problem with Showtime is that its unofficial tagline is, it sort of became boring after a while. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we are officially the Miami Marlins. We are a completely different team this year. All eyes are on us, for better or for worse. So hopefully the franchise season two will become less boring than the franchise season one did. More homeland, less the big C. Yes, exactly. Eric Adams recommends Gravity Falls on the Disney Channel. Claire Zolke recommends the franchise. You can catch their work online at avclub.com. And Claire also runs zolke.com, Z-U-L-K-E-Y. Eric, Claire, always a pleasure. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. For 10 years, my guest Lisa Kudrow played Phoebe on Friends. Phoebe was a bit dopey, but essentially sweet and might have been the show's most beloved character. Since Friends, Kudrow has balanced that sweetness with darker themes. Her Emmy-nominated lead role in The Comeback was as an actress who was more or less defined by her narcissism. In her current project, Web Therapy, she plays a therapist who conducts her sessions online. She's also kind of a terrible person. Here she is having the tables turned on her by her husband's sex therapist. In fact, her husband's straightening out therapist, played by Meryl Streep. Can I ask you a question? Yes, of course. I'm here to help. When's the last time you really laughed, like a, a real belly laugh that came from down deep inside you that you couldn't stop? When's the last time? Don't tell me. 
just hold on to your answer. In the last year, in the last five years. I've never been out of control, you know, where I've wet myself. No, I don't think I've ever done anything so awkward and embarrassing, no. When's the last time that you really let yourself cry like a little girl in the last year? You know, I wasn't the type of little girl who cried, so (laughs) I have to say that uh, I've been a pretty emotionally consistent and stable person my whole entire life. I'm just, I'm lucky that way. I don't want you to answer me, really. Oh. I just want you to hold the answers in your heart. Okay. And find out what they tell you. Done. (laughs) (laughs) The second season of Web Therapy is now on Showtime. Lisa Lisa Kudrow, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I was excited to read uh, that you come from a family of neurologists. Uh. Um, (laughs) I'm sure that is exciting. Well, it's exciting for me because (laughs) I've relied on neurologists for much of my life because I I am I get migraines. Uh And um, your father, I know, was a headache specialist. Um, You actually work with him a little bit. Did you have anybody in in your family who got migraine? Um, I think we all did. And I know that's what made my father decide to, you know, exclusively research and treat headache. They say that it's like um, – they say that it's sort of a, a neurological oversensitivity, that it's – that when – that a person who gets migraines brain wants to be in a sort of static state and certain things that change, it freaks out over. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I remember, you know, from listening to, you know, my father would, of course, lecture a lot on it. Um, Yeah, after it would happen. No, (laughs) no, not at all. (laughs) You know, two other. Thank you all for coming here. (laughs) Right. I said, sit down and listen. No, he didn't do that. (laughs) He didn't. But um, no, after, you know, fasting. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't eat or, you know, after people would get them on um, weekends sometimes. Um, you you grew up in Encino, California here, not far from here. And well, Tarzana, technically. Tarzana. Yeah, right um, next door. Um, <laughs> and, you, uh, and you went to college at Vassar and were not an acting student there. You were not an acting major there. No. Um, and I got the impression that maybe part of what, Part of what led you into um, doing science in school, which is what you did, mm-hmm. um, was that you that you wanted to do something that was, you know, I don't know, serious. Mm-hmm. That you wanted to do something that felt like it was not a frivolous thing. It felt important. Uh-huh. I mean, it felt like knowledge worth having. Right. You know. And, I mean, I saw my father doing it. You know, like I said, it was mostly doing research and treating patients. And it just looked it looked really thrilling to me. And then the information, you know, when I was in high school and first took sort of a real biology class, I, I, I mean, I was hooked. I was really hooked. I thought it was the most fascinating thing. But was it competing at the same time with um, with a latent interest to either – be funny or be an actress? <laughs> no, not at all. But not at all. Not even a little bit. No. 
Really? The answer I, to that is no. I read somewhere, it was an interview related to a teen-themed movie that you did, where you described in sort of, sort of uh, specifically a very painful adolescence. Um, Seventh grade was, yeah. <laughs> specifically? I mean, specifically. Like maybe... What happened in seventh grade? Like the... Well, I had friends that dropped me. I mean, they decided they didn't want to be friends with me anymore. You know, one time I was literally attacked. I was attacked by... I was in seventh grade, ninth grade guys. I was late to class and they attacked me. Um, And I remember... And one of them was popular and he watched his less popular, you know, nerdy friend attack me. And I remember telling the one friend I had left... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, you know, this thing happened to me. And she went, oh, you take everything so seriously. I know that guy. He's really nice. Okay. So the world, it's upside down. I mean, it's all upside down and nothing makes sense. And wow. that that was what was so devastating was just you have no control. And pe- these are like wild animals and it's not safe. <laughs> <laughs> This is not a safe world. Were you were you g- good or not good at the stuff that you have to do to, you know, or did you just remove yourself nerd style? Um, I, the thing that saved me, what I did was, this is where acting comes into it, is that summer I took a play production class, which was writing sketches, and it wasn't very serious, you know, but it was just fun. And I did meet kids in there, which were in a different group. And, um, you know, maybe if you're looking at levels, on a higher level than the, you know, the people who dropped me even maybe. And, um, you know, I became friends with them because, you know, I did – I was funny and I, and I did write fun sketches. And so I just, you know, worked hard at getting new, these new friends. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the Emmy-winning actress Lisa Kudrow, who co-starred as Phoebe on Friends. Her newest project is a web series turned TV show called Web Therapy. That show just began its second season and airs Monday nights at 11 on Showtime. I was so (laughs) excited to read that one of the things that motivated you was the fact that your your, uh, brother's best friend was John Lovitz. Yeah. And John Lovitz... Not only be I, I love John Lovitz. I think he's hilarious. He's hilarious. Um, just one of the funniest guys. And um, but I have to say that part of what delighted me was the idea that he's a real human being, <laughs> because his public persona does not seem like a real person at all. And I've never seen him even at ninety percent of that public persona. Like only a hundred percent of him John Lovitzing around. Right. And so the idea that he could be a real person in real life that actually inspired someone to do something in real life uh, was amazing to me. <laughs> no, he's a really good person. And he was so encouraging. It was so nice. And, you know, look, I had grown up with him and I'd seen him struggle. I mean, he was a theater major in college and took acting classes and would audition. And he was not giving up. And it looked like it just wasn't happening. And then he got Saturday Night Live. And I just thought, okay, so it's possible then. I mean, maybe if I just keep working at it, then it would be a possibility. I told him I wanted to be an actress. And he said, okay, great. Here's what you do. Go to the Groundlings. The most I'd ever learned was at the Groundlings. And I think improvisation is crucial. What did you learn at the Groundlings, which you did go to? I learned everything. I think I learned so many things. Um, 
The Groundlings is a, the famous Los Angeles comedy theater known for uh, improv and, and character sketch. And sketch comedy, yeah. One of the things about doing uh, uh, comic improv, I mean, I guess most improv in the States is comic, but mm-hmm. is that you you have to learn to recognize almost subconsciously what is funny about what's going on Mm -hmm. and then drive that Mm -hmm. um, immediately because otherwise it will be boring. Right. I think for me, the funny was in my mind going, well, that's absurd. Mm -hmm. And then what's more absurd than that being absurd is that this person thinks it's perfectly fine Mm -hmm. or is trying to convince everyone that it's perfectly fine. That's how I approached Phoebe, Mm -hmm. you know, because... It's just that's absurd. Her mother killed herself, and it's all sad. But what's absurd is that she's, you know, treating it as if, well, you know how it goes, as if (laughs) everyone's had their stepfathers in prison and then you live, you know, in a car with a crack addict. You know how it goes. Um, So that's sort of – that's been my sort of in to comedy. I want to play this clip from uh, the pilot of Friends, which I just watched yesterday. And uh, this is this is sort of your big scene, your big character establishment scene. And it is basically exactly uh, along those lines. That's so, the monologue? Yeah. So everyone, that was the audition piece. Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. everyone, everyone is sitting around the kitchen table in this scene uh, consoling Jennifer Aniston, who's just showed up and has is super upset because she left her fiance at the altar um and then you bust out with this give her a break it's hard being on your own for the first time thank you you're welcome i remember when i first came to this city i was 14 my mom had just killed herself and my stepdad was back in prison and i got here and i didn't know anybody and i ended up living with this albino guy who was like cleaning windshields outside port authority and then he killed himself And then I found aromatherapy. So believe me, I know exactly how you feel. (laughs) The word you're looking for is... Anyway... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is is an amazing scene. It is such a terrifying string of specifics. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading, um, I... I went on Wikipedia and read the character description of Phoebe from Friends. And it basically was, you know, there's parts where, sh- where they describe all our relationships with the other characters. But the intro two or three paragraphs, the, the nut of this thing, was just a list of nightmares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just horrible, 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 <laughs> horrible, 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 horrible things. All one after the other. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the... Um, you know, the juice of this character was retaining retaining that lightness in the face of mm-hmm. this string of horrible nightmares. Right. Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. There's... Very optimistic or, you know, incomplete denial. But uh-huh. that's a good coping mechanism sometimes. It's funny because it strikes me as exactly the opposite of someone who uh, who at at 10 has the mentality of a 30-year-old. I kept saying, are you sure (laughs) that I should play this part? I have no, I mean, I have no point of reference. I I mean, I did find people, you know, that I had known that could help me along. I just mean inside my head. Like, oh, I had a friend in college who was kicked out and her parents wouldn't pay 
for her to go, and she had to work in a nursing home and clean up after old people and all this stuff. And she was no idiot, but she would also be very light about, oh, <laughs> the other day Martha did the funniest thing. And it's this horrible, <laughs> sad story about this woman with dementia who couldn't do something, and she had to help. And this young girl has to clean up after all these old people. That was her job. And so I definitely drew on this girl. I thought that is just the, the definition of resilience to me. You know, like not there's no state of victimhood for Phoebe or this, you know, this friend of mine. And I think that's what's really admirable. So I did have a lot of admiration for Phoebe, even if she didn't have any information, like real information, reliable information. After a break, Lisa Kudrow on her career post Friends. I feel like if I was on Friends for 10 years, that there would be a part of me that was just like, from now on, all the things I make are people's enemies. <laughs> I know. When I look at it objectively, it looks like that's what I've done, huh? It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Bullseye is supported in part by IFC, presenting Comedy Bang Bang every Friday at 10, 9 central. This week, featuring guest Ed Helms with host Scott Ackerman. More information at IFC.com. And by Squarespace, a site for creating a blogger portfolio with over 100 templates and fonts using a drag-and-drop interface, offering 24-hour support and online workshops. More at Squarespace.com slash Bullseye. Hey guys, Nick White here. I work on the show. So it's been about six months since we've transitioned The Sound of Young America into Bullseye. We are really excited about the new format. We're proud of it. We're bringing you all kinds of new content. But we really do want to know what you guys think about six months in. So we've put together a really, really quick survey. It won't take long at all to do, but it will really help us know what you guys are thinking about the new show. So go to MaximumFun.org slash Bullseye Survey and let us know. Please? Thanks. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Lisa Kudrow. She won an Emmy as Phoebe on the long-running sitcom Friends, and she starred in movies like Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion and Analyze This. She co-created and stars in the improvised comedy web series Web Therapy, which has been adapted for TV on Showtime. Was it strange to... I mean, one of the things about being on a sitcom is especially the kind of sitcom that you were on... Um, you know, where a multi-camera sitcom is is shot in in a lot of ways like a play. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's more linear than a single camera show. Mm-hmm. Um, so you basically come in once a week. You can went in once a week for ten years, seven months out of the year, or whatever, and lived in that. I have to imagine that you know, I, it must it must affect you. To be in that for so long. Yeah. I imagine it did. <laughs> Do you have any perspective on how it did? <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't think I do. I, I, I love structure. So mm-hmm. this was perfect. I mean, of course, yeah, it's perfect for any actor who'd want a steady job with a huge paycheck. Yes, right. of course. <laughs> duh. You know, <laughs> that's my big insight. It was perfect. Um I think, but what was unique is that the six of us weren't tired of it. You know, we really had fun together. One thing I learned is, you know, because I was a good student, mm-hmm. um, when we would rehearse and the director says it's Jimmy Burroughs is trying to get our attention to move on to the next scene or, you know, let's try it this way. And 
the actors are sort of like talking or playing with each other. They were playing with each other, like messing around. And um, it was horseplay in my head. And you're, we're not listening to the boss. We're not listening to the dad, the boss, the teacher. You know, like you guys, we got to And James Burroughs is the king of dads, king of comedy dads. He is, but he... The legendary director of every great television sitcom ever. Well, yes. Okay, yes. That is who Jimmy Burroughs is. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's right. Directed and executive producer of Cheers, you know, before that Taxi. But what he understood and the other actors understood that I was clueless about was, no, no, you have to, there has to be horseplay because you have to keep it light. This is not serious. This is not a classroom. And, you know, you're not learning surgery. And you have to keep it light and playful. You have got to be playing. And whenever I would be a guest star on a show and I would see the actors, I'm like, well, these were the people who didn't do well in school. Because look at them. Look at all this horseplay. No one's paying attention. We need to move along. And it took me until Friends and maybe into the second season when it finally clicked for me. No, no, they all know what they're doing. They're right. You have to keep it light and fun. And so I finally got with the program. I was watching The Comeback this week, Mm -hmm. um, which was an HBO show that you did, I think, in 2004, 2005. Right. Not light. Yeah. But good. It's it's great. (laughs) Um, I hadn't seen it. And um, the thing that impressed me about it was – um, you know, the the show is structured as uh, uh, the footage from a reality show being shot about a sitcom actress who's making a, a return to sip, sitcom acting after 10 years of uh, career doldrums. Right. And um, the thing that surprised me about it was I think I expected something – you know, a, a lot of shows like that are um, – they essentially use that they use that reality feeling mm-hmm. um to ground silliness um you know i think the american office is a great example i it's a brilliant program about as good as it gets and often what they do is they use that as that aesthetic feeling of you are there in order to um, help you buy into something really silly happening. Mm-hmm. Um, or even, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is as good as a sitcom gets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it's totally ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but because it has that feeling, you feel you buy into it 100%. Right. The thing about the comeback was that um, it's brutal. Right. It is not – it's not – I mean, silly – some silly stuff happens and there are jokes. And, yes. Like joke jokes sometimes. Right. But – Well, I thought it was hilarious but also really brutal. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was I was surprised that at every turn where you, where you could have deflated the – you could have deflated the emotional stakes – with a with a jokey joke, mm-hmm. um, or just something happening happy, uh huh. You didn't <laughs> right, right, because this was right. Two thousand five. It was only the second year of Amazing Race. The only like reality bios were Anna Nicole Smith and the Osbournes. Um, but the. You know, I had seen The Amazing Race and I couldn't believe my eyes that there were people like vomiting and crying on TV. And I thought, well, it doesn't get more humiliating than that. And you're trading that humiliation in for what? I mean, after this show is over, you're going to do what? 
Like, I don't, I don't understand. I think this is dangerous. I think it's really dangerous to, you know, trade in the spotlight for your dignity. And um, Michael Patrick King definitely agreed. And we just felt there were so many things that we could address in that. And we thought it would make it all a little easier if this were about an actress, because at least she's signed up for that, you know. Um, But that she's just chasing the spotlight instead of anything real and something that can carry on into the future fulfillment, you know. And she didn't need it. She had a husband who had money. She had money. You know, she didn't have to pay the rent. And so she had to throw herself into the most humiliating thing, which is a show called The Comeback. And, um, yeah, and just watching her chase it and swallow all this horrible stuff just so she can stay in the game um, and didn't care. And it was fine. She was tough. That was actually – that character was a very strong person, I thought. Here's the thing. I mean, I think that often that kind of character, a character whose um, reach is bigger than what they can grab and mm-hmm. is a little tragic, is played the way that, say, you know, Will Ferrell and Anchorman, they're played as a buffoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe there's a, maybe they usually have, if they're the main character, they're sweet in their aims, mm-hmm. but they're a buffoon, essentially. And so you just laugh at how much they fail at at things. Mm-hmm. And there are moments where you laugh at your character in that show, but that is not the main thing that's going on in that show. <laughs> I think it depends on how many times you've seen it. Okay. <laughs> in my in my first watch of it. Then, yeah, yeah, brutal. Yeah, I like mean, standing in the doorway. I don't know if I could watch another second. It's too. It's very painful to watch you go through this, right? Um, and I don't know. I mean, the pain felt the pain felt like it was um, like it had a, like it was grounded in something um, mm. for you or your co-creator or something, and not just like it was a projection of you know you weren't just making fun of. Anna Nicole Smith or the Osbournes or something. Right. Well, I, hmm. I, you know, I, here's what's crazy, mm-hmm. you know, and that how much I don't know about myself. I wasn't in pain portraying her, even when the camera's super close and she looks like, I don't know what to do next, like a little panicked or that hurt. But it, it hurts for a split second and then, all right, well, I got to get out of this. And so then it was just spinning. Mm-hmm. Then the look was meant to show <laughs> just spinning. It's okay. Got to make it okay because I'm not going to quit. Right. And, um, you know, and for Michael too, it was just watching. I think for both of us, it was just people who won't open their eyes at all. You know, it's the, it's, Another form of denial. It's like, I want that and it's okay and I can justify whatever you throw at me. I can justify why it's okay. And she's very phony and thinks that she's getting away with being funzy. But she's not. She's not getting away with it. We can see you're so phony. And I don't know. All those things. There's a lot to it. I mean, it's hard for me to. I mean, there's something about the fact that in order to. In order to pursue creativity professionally, mm-hmm. 
you have to be able to make some assumption against repeated evidence that people want you to entertain them or want you to do whatever it is that you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact that, you know, especially for an actor, mm-hmm. is just a string of no's. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that also feels like the thing that, you know, you had to learn to develop some of that stupidity mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call sure. it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Foolhardiness, optimism. Yep. Big dreaming. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's sort of the defining characteristic of this character that she is just going to go do whatever it is that she's going to do despite the fact that there are all these awful pains along the way. Right. So her I mean Valerie Cherish to me was well I'm still going to get what I want and you can try to derail me but I'm not going to let you. You know, like I'm just that strong a person I'm just not going to let not going to let it happen. Because I've got bigger plans, which aren't big plans, you right. know. But in her mind, they're bigger plans. And, you know, that mean writer, Polly G, he can give me the finger, he can insult me, he can do whatever he wants. But I'm not insulted if I don't feel insulted. There's this, you know? <laughs> there's a scene in this, there's a scene in the second, um, uh, there's a scene in the second episode where they're at the upfronts, they're mm-hmm. presenting the sitcom, and, uh, <laughs> Uh, Valerie wants to um, uh, Valerie wants to do a bit on stage. Is expecting to do a bit on stage at the upfronts, which is where uh, networks present their shows to advertisers. And so she she keeps asking the writers to write a bit. Mm-hmm. And there's the scene where that mean writer mm-hmm. um, comes upstairs to her room a little bit late at night, probably drunk, mm-hmm. um, has this note in her hand in his hand that she wrote to him. That said, can we get together a bit for the upfronts? He just comes upstairs. She opens the door, says, I'm so glad you came. He just points his finger at her mm-hmm. like a gun, just pretends to shoot her mm-hmm. and then walks away. And it is the – it is just – it's overwhelming. It's devastating. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it seems to me like there is something in – um, being an actor and maybe especially in being an actress, mm-hmm. that that is just built into it, not mm-hmm. to the extent that it was portrayed in the show, but that there's this kind of brutality that's built into the gig. There definitely is. There definitely is. If you're not the star, then you don't really count. And... I think actors are all treated a lot like you don't really count. You just don't really count. I mean, that's most of the time, you know, of an actor's life, which I think you were warned about, you know. Right. (laughs) It's just going to be brutal. But I would see it in, you know, when I would be a guest star on a TV show. Like, you know, you hold your head up high when you're sort of being treated like, what are you doing here? You know, (laughs) and just do it. And you don't count. You don't. You're like this invisible spot, you know, that's somehow still getting in their way somehow. Um, and so for, you know, this writer, that's what Valerie is. I mean, I think we could have actually spent a little more time explaining what his rage against her was, that she represented reality TV and it was foisted on him 
by the network who was trying to hedge their bets. Your sitcom will not be enough, and we have to have a reality show to go along with it and, you know, make the show younger, even though we're insisting that you cast this middle-aged woman, because there's that insanity of networks, too. And this guy saw himself as an artist, and he's stuck with this woman. He doesn't think she's funny. He thinks she's, you know, hacky like a hacky sitcom actress. And, you know, she keeps coming up with these ideas that maybe worked in the late 80s. You know, got to do something fun at the upfront. Got to get their attention. And, you know, he just, it's, it's, it, it, she represents a lot more insult to him than I think we really showed. And also reality TV is, you know, taking work away from writers. So his whole livelihood is at stake. And, um, yeah, I mean, and the direction of his show is being dictated to him basically through this woman somehow. He has to use her. She doesn't fit. Yeah. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Lisa Kudrow. She co-created and stars in the web series turned Showtime show Web Therapy, which includes appearances from the likes of Rosie O'Donnell and Meryl Streep. Since Friends ended... I mean, at the end of Friends, you were purportedly making a million dollars an episode. So mm-hmm. you just made a a real, uh, you know, like Scrooge McDuck level of money to mm-hmm. making that show. And God bless you for it. I I kind of feel bad when people complain about how much a famous person makes for doing something. I'd rather they get it. They're actually in, involved in making the thing rather than, you know, Mr. Sony. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and Mr. Sony. <laughs> Well, Mr. Um, Sony's a nice guy. Yeah. Mick? Mick Sony? It's Mrs. Yeah. Sony that you got to worry about. <laughs> She's a real conniver. She likes shoes. Um, so so you had a squajillion dollars, and, um, and so you were in a position to, which is weird, that you could just do something. But on the other hand, you still... You still have to live in. Uh, you still have to live in an entertainment landscape mm-hmm. where you're still an actress, mm-hmm. where someone still has to cast you in something right. often, or say yes to something that you've created or co-created. Right. So you're in sort of a weird. You're in sort of a weird nether world because you could just stop making things mm-hmm. if you wanted. Right. If money were the yeah. driving force. Yeah. Right. But. But you still live in this world where you have to, at least to some extent, get somebody to sign off on something before you can get it. Yeah, except for a web series. Right. So is that how you ended up in web series? You're just like, you know what? Maybe I'm just going to make a thing that I like. Yeah, it ultimately became that. I mean, we just had this idea um, that was absurd You know, people are doing a lot of stuff on the Internet, and wouldn't it be funny, because it's absurd, if they, you know, offered – someone offered therapy, but only three-minute sessions. And and the three minutes was – let's see, because of like web series, a webisode, people don't like to watch things for longer than, let's say, like a three-minute sketch. So – Okay, so how do we justify that it's three minutes? Because the therapist will only offer three-minute sessions. She thinks 50-minute sessions are boring. Cut to the chase. Out of the whole 50 minutes, I think three minutes of it were only really helpful. So let's just have those in the sessions I'm going to do. Like none of it makes sense. It's just really – that's a horrible idea. And then it's the Internet. So you don't know. I mean anyone can just say, oh, no, I'm a specialist in this (laughs) because I said it. I want to play a conversation uh, from the show. It's between you and Lily Tomlin, who plays your mother. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think it's just another really lovely illustration of your your penchants for uh, self-flagellation <laughs> in your work. Remember when you were a little child and you used to try to climb? Well, you were never little, really. You were always too pudgy. But you would try to clamber up onto my lap and cuddle. And um, I know I should have cuddled you, and I blame myself for not cuddling. Well. But it's not really your fault if you weren't appealing. And you were always eating something, you know, sticky and gooey. And I just wish that I had those days back. I would, I would so treasure them. Oh. Well, that's a, that's a darling thought. I just want to sweep away this dysfunctional debris that exists between us. That's how I feel. And I think little children are sticky and gooey and I, I, But I do, I do think that children, even little <laughs> children, realize when their mothers are rejecting them. Do you? Well, I never felt that way. It's odd. That's never how I felt. I, I always know, felt like you you're, were... You're not perceptive, and you never have been. <laughs> <laughs> and that's her mother. We had to explain how Fiona became Fiona. But, I mean, I think a lot of people who were in your position would do what they could to make characters who are heroes. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it's, right. fun to, it's fun to get to be the hero. But I wonder if... I don't think it's so fun. I, okay. <laughs> I think it's more fun to be the, you know, hilariously damaged. That person who thinks, that, you know, they're pulling it off. You know, no one will be able to see how self-serving I am, even though she's not doing much to mask it. I feel like if I was, and you know, this is this may be just me, but I feel like if I was on Friends for ten years and it was my job to be one of six people who are America's favorite people, you know, like they're just what, no matter what they did, and they did negative things, but the the goal, one of the premises of that show is you want to be friends with these people, Mm -hmm. that there would be a part of me that was just like, I just want to make, from now on, all the things I make are people's enemies. (laughs) I know. It looks like that's what I've done, huh? (laughs) I know. When I look at it objectively, it looks like that's what I've done. But does this come up in your web therapy sessions? <laughs> I don't have web therapy sessions. But um, no, not yet. Maybe it's an interesting, interesting thing to get to. But I think, you know, the truth is, you know, as I was in the Groundlings and creating characters, they had to push me and threaten to kick me out if I didn't finally do a ditz. I never... It never dawned on me or occurred to me to do a dumb girl. And they had to push really hard. And then that became sort of, oh, my God, that's the easiest way, though, to get a laugh. You know, if you're auditioning for a role and it's secretary or a waitress, then just make her dumb because any line can be made funny if she's dumb. And then next thing I know, it's almost all I was playing. Which was fine. I didn't find it frustrating. I thought each dumb character I ever played, you know, was a different color of dumb. So that was really interesting (laughs) to me. It was fine. But my, like, sense of humor really is it's people who don't are dumb in a different way. Like, they don't see how horrible they are. They don't see how narcissistic they are, misguided or, you know, manipulative. That, to me, is what is so funny. It's about, like, a a blindness. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that doesn't mean dumb. 
<laughs> you know, like fully dumb. It's just those those blind spots that everybody has about themselves, and that's what I'm amplifying because to me that's really that's what's really funny. I mean, we purposely had Fiona. She used to work in the world of finance. Um, that's why she's so. There's something very self-serving and greedy about her, and doesn't think about how will this impact others. What you know, <laughs> not at all. And um, it's just fun to explore all that, all those areas that are like different parts of our world and society and our politics and and all of that. That's just really fun. And the thing is, I don't have the requirement that it needs. Thank God that it needs to be a huge hit. Like Friends was. I know enough to know that that was like lightning in a bottle, you know. I think we all understood. We were there for 10 years, you know. Like, well, this doesn't come along ever. So this is really lucky. You can't expect for that to happen again. So you might as well just have a good time. (laughs) Do what you want to do and see how many people show up. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. Lisa Kudrow's show, Web Therapy, is airing now on Showtime. You can also find it online at webtherapyshow.com. And um, if you want to watch Friends, that's on most television channels. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I did this show for years from my house, but when my son was born, things got a little too crazy to keep working from home. So instead of our staff competing for the living room with my two dogs and my little tiny baby, we got a new office. We've got it working now with desks and chairs and microphones and all that stuff, but it's almost completely barren besides that. The walls are empty. There's no character, you know. So instead of buying some prefab Swedish knickknacks, I headed to the Rose Bowl flea market to do some serious shopping. We needed something that expressed the spirit of our organization, so guests wouldn't just feel like they were doing an interview in a dentist's office. Luckily, the Rose Bowl flea market here in Southern California is one of the biggest in the country. There are 2,500 vendors in this huge parking lot outside the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, and 15,000, sometimes 20,000 people come out to shop every month. If I was going to find the perfect piece for our office, that was where I was going to find it. And to improve my odds of success, I brought in a ringer, Danielle Colby from the show American Pickers. Danielle's a bit different than your average antique stealer. She founded a roller derby team in Iowa, where she's from, and she has her own burlesque troupe, among other things. What's your burlesque name? Danny Diesel. It's pretty good. I just took it from my roller derby name. She works at the shop from the show, but she also has her own store next door that sells clothes she designs and makes herself from vintage fabric. So... In other words, she's basically the ultimate shopping partner. When we met up, we were looking out over a field of stuff that actually, literally, went on as far as we could see. So you've never been to the Rose Bowl flea market before. Do you have any feelings about what kind of strategy we we should pursue? I think we should find the area where they have the two-headed dog taxidermy (laughs) stuff, and we'll we'll start there. Um, Well, let's let's head down to this end, and we'll just start we'll just start looking. Okay, perfect. Let's do it. So Danielle's not a certified American picker for nothing. She pounced on the first booth that we saw. It was a booth full of cast iron animals, and and it had a few Asian antiques. Look at this door knocker. You need this for your office. You need a door knocker. like This is like a a book with huge antlers. Ah, and the birdcage. 
<laughs> you need to have the bird cage. I really don't need a bird cage. How much is the bird cage? I'm going to take that bird cage. Can can I circle around in a bit? Sorry, bird cage is mine. You understand that we're shopping for me today, That's right, Daniel? Me. Well, you know, I I'm a woman. And then how much on the door knocker? Thirty-five. Thirty-five. It's a pretty good. It's a pretty solid door knocker. But I'm a renter. That's you. That's you. Still have people at your door. But you can't put holes in your door. <laughs> the knockers were cool, but we rent our office, and I'd have to buy a replacement door when our lease ran out if I put them up. So it was already pretty hot, and I, I was frankly worried that this whole thing was going to be kind of an uphill battle. Still, it was early, and a few rows over, we actually spotted something pretty great. There are these huge, uh, these huge kind of stage chests. This one is a little bit humpbacked and is made completely of leather. The pieces are all here. This is beautiful. I'd check on this. Okay, we're going to go find yeah, out how much this chest is. Can I ask you a question? How much is the uh, chest in front, the leather one? This one is 275 It's an early Spanish style, all uh, leather, turn of century. Beautiful piece. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's getting 275 on it. Do it. You're not supposed to show your excitement, but I'm really excited right now. <laughs> I have a hard time containing my excitement. I just bought a chest recently. Hmm. I'm thinking about this. 275 is a lot for me. So anyway, later on that day, I saw that exact same chest at another vendor's booth. He'd bought it and marked it up a couple hundred bucks. So it was a pretty good deal. But storage is the one thing that we have in spades here at our headquarters. And anyway, I was looking for impact. And at this point, I was hot and kind of worried we'd never find it. But it's always darkest before the dawn, right? i tell you what I really want, Danielle. I really want this Brannock sh- foot measuring device. You are a strange man. Why? Because it measures your foot perfectly. Look. <laughs> it was Danielle that found it. Oh, you need a you need a rocket ship. Oh, that is a good rocket yeah, ship. Yeah, that's awesome. Such a good rocket ship. It works. <laughs> Holy it mackerel. Okay, so you know those coin-op horses that kids ride in front of the supermarket? She found one of those, but it is a rocket, and it's yellow, and it is six feet tall. In other words, it is basically the single greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Well, how much is it? Nine fifty. That's a, You need a rocket ship. It works? Yeah. So I came into this thing ready to spend some money, but it turned out that this rocket ship, awesome though it was, Cost nine hundred and fifty dollars, which is a lot of tote bags. How would you? How do you feel about six hundred? It's a public radio show, sir. Oh, I'd say closer to seven fifty. Seems pretty, pretty great. How about seven hundred? How about seven twenty-five? How about seven twenty-five? And you throw in that Brannock foot measuring device. Oh man! How about seven fifty? And I'll throw that in. And you'll bring it to me right by MacArthur Park. Delivery would maybe have to be a little bit extra just because I'd have, have to... to yeah, because I'd have to come all the way from Lancaster. I'm going to take a... I'm going to give it a look around. Okay. okay. <laughs> started getting pretty intense, and I had to check in with Danielle. Danielle, what do you think? They want 850 for it. Bring it to, bring it to me. <sighs> pretty great. I'll tell you, Danielle, he doesn't know this, but my logo is a rocket ship. Do you... Oh, shh. Okay, eight fifty. You got it. Yeah, sold. It's the deal of the day. Good job. I'm gonna have to write you a check. It's a corporate check. The universe. (laughs) Okay. See, I'm doing good for you. We did it. I'm spending all my money. I'll tell you that much. I like this. We're a good team. 
Every time I think about some celebrity coming into our office for an interview and seeing that rocket ship, I get excited. I am excited right now talking about it, and I wrote this out ahead of time. And you know, at 10 cents a ride, that's not a liability. That's an investment. Oh, and I feel like we should mention Danielle did give me my own burlesque name. Space Dog. Space Dog 69. There you go. Space Dog 69 is my new burlesque name. I'm on board. (laughs) Danielle Colby is a burlesque performer with Burlesque Le Moustache. You can find them in Iowa and Southern Illinois. She's also one of the co-stars of the History Channel show American Pickers. It airs Mondays at 9. If you want to see pictures of the rocket ship we got on our trip, and how about this? I'll make a video of our producer Nick riding in it. You can visit us online at MaximumFun.org. He's shaking his head, but I'm going to make him do it. After a break, Eric Andre deconstructs the talk show. And I mean that completely literally. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio. Contortion. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. The Memory Palace is a remarkable podcast about history. To imagine it, start by wiping away whatever comes to mind when you hear a podcast about history. Replace it with small, beautiful, fascinating stories. Things you'd never imagine and never expect. A sense of awe and wonder. Something amazing. That's The Memory Palace, the newest podcast in the MaximumFun.org family. Find it free in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher or online at MaximumFun.org. That's The Memory Palace, the newest podcast in the Maximum Fun family. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The talk show has been deconstructed before on Fernwood Tonight on HBO by Martin Short's Jiminy Glick in the early years of David Letterman, but never has it been so thoroughly deconstructed as it is on The Eric Andre Show. In fact, the top of every episode of The Eric Andre Show is a montage of Andre literally deconstructing the set, destroying it with his body, also eating glass, spitting blood just generally freaking out while a jazz combo sort of does the same thing. Ladies and gentlemen, the Eric Andre Show! Eric Andre, welcome to Bullseye. Hey, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So this is like a defining characteristic of your television program. You flinging yourself into things and physically hurting yourself and destroying... I'm sacrificing my, my body for comedy. Everything around Laying you. Laying on the line. Where, where, did this, where did this part of, uh, of the show come from? I don't know. I think uh, I don't know what like the spark of inspiration was. I'm like a big. I was a big Gigi Allen fan, and uh, 
high school and like I was into Jackass and the CKY videos that those guys made beforehand and um I was into Bad Brains uh and just like going to punk shows and stuff like that so maybe from that I don't know. Had you ever done it on stage before you did it for the pilot of the show? Yeah, I did the show live the first time I did the show my friend had a a comedian friend of mine had a residency at uh this place in Tribeca in New York called I think it was called The Tank and for February he's black and he did like a Black History Month comedy uh residency for the month and uh that was one of the uh all all black performers so he had like uh I got to debut the show the live show there 2008 um and everybody there was just kind of doing stand up and doing their thing and then I came out and destroyed the whole stage and poured ketchup and mustard down I had like a bikini bottom on <laughs> I poured ketchup and mustard down my pants ketchup and mustard is yeah. are also big characters on the television yeah. show there's this performance artist Paul McCarthy um who does a lot of stuff with ketchup and mustard and there's like a lot of homages <laughs> to him throughout the series he's awesome if you can ever find any of his videos i mean when you do this on when you did this on stage for television i presume you have you know this isn't a huge budgeted television program but you've probably got a prop master or whatever that's called yeah a guy who's in charge of like sawing a little notch into the table yeah, so it breaks department. in a particular way. Yeah, yeah, our art department's awesome. They're the best. When you're on when you're on stage at a comedy theater in Tribeca, um there's probably just regular stuff on oh, the stage. Oh, yeah, I like sliced the bottom of my foot open and I at the beginning of the show and I had no idea. I had like so much adrenaline going. I had no idea till Way after the show, I looked down and, like, all this blood was in my shoe. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, what did I – I don't even remember doing that or when I did that. But uh, there was no – when I was doing it in those days, there was no – it was just me. So I was just, like, I you know, shopping at Kmart the day of, buying all, like, the ketchup and mustard and all the props and stuff. And – uh Nobody at the venue knew what I was going to I didn't want to tell anybody at any venue what I was going to do because they would say no. So better to get in trouble and just act dumb like, oh, I didn't know. You didn't want me to break glass and flop all over the place. I mean, what it feels like when – and you can tell me if this is, if this is actually true. But what it feels like when you do that on the television show is your your character on the show – is so uncomfortable, so nervous, doing such a terrible job overall mm-hmm. that it feels like a it feels like an expression of stage fright. Like it feels yeah. like something. It that is it, totally. Uh, it's all nervous energy. People ask like, I did Jimmy Fallon, and I was like jumping all over the place. And somebody tweeted like, Did this guy do a mountain of cocaine before he went out? on stage and I was like no I'm just so nervous until I like hyperventilate my way through life I just have kind of it's just like it, life is just moments between panic attacks so it's just coping with my nerves that's why my stand up's really high energy and I'm really loud and stuff like that cuz I'm just terrified have you always have you always been that way <laughs> yeah always I slept in my parents bed till I was 10 years old 
I was just nervous. <laughs> I thought aliens were going to zap, beam themselves into my closet and abduct me because I saw fire in the sky when I was like a little kid. One of the great parts of the Eric Andre show is your interplay with Hannibal Burris, who is your sidekick. And yeah. You are, as we described, as as nervous and active and yelly as a person on television can be, probably more mm-hmm. than a person on television <laughs> can be. Um, Hannibal, just as he is in his day-to-day life, at least when I've interacted with him, his scale of of activeness slash intensity goes from about goes from zero to maybe three out of ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's why he's the best co-host. It's like the perfect odd couple relationship. Uh, and I knew he's been part of the show since the very beginning. Since I like was doodling sketches of the show, you know, on my laptop. Um, he's always been a part of it um, years ago for. Five years, I think I've, I've had the idea. So um, <clears throat> uh, I just knew he was perfect because uh, he's just like on this. He's very creative and on the same wavelength as me creatively. He's kind of out there, and he was he had his own point of view and personality. But he's just like polar opposite in energy. So I thought he'd be perfect. He'd ground the whole show. I could be even crazier because he's there and he's like the voice of reality and speaking for the audience and he's just perfect. Let's take a listen to uh, a bit that Hannibal does on the show. This is called the Hannibal Minute. Um, It's sort of like a it's sort of like an Andy Rooney type situation but uh, hosted by the very funny Hannibal Burris. I think people make too big of a deal about counterfeit money. You know how we could work with counterfeit money? Just everyone act like it's real. And everything will be fine. Get that fake dough. And let's just pass it around and buy sandwiches in cars. Yep, you got to buy sandwiches inside cars. <laughs> and I think that's a solution to a lot of our economic problems. He he once did uh, he once did a bit on our show when he was, he was performing as a stand-up. Um, about a girl who broke up with him because her, I can I can't probably I should be delicate about how I put this, but about how her her because her lady parts were gentrifying, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was one of the best premises I've ever heard a stand-up comedian. <laughs> my favorite my favorite Hannibal joke. He had a joke. He doesn't even do it anymore. He's like, if people, he goes, I don't sign autographs. If people ask for my autograph or the show, I don't sign autographs, but I will let you for $10 wear my glasses for half an hour or something like that. <laughs> Try to walk around, read with them on, something like that. Like, I'm butchering his joke. But. Tell, me, tell me about how the two of you started working together. We were just doing stand-up in New York. He, he came out from Chicago. Um, I was in New York, I think, for a year or two before him. Uh, we just do, started doing stand up and kind of started doing the festivals at the same time. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Just running into each other constantly at shows and stuff. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Eric Andre, is the host of the Eric Andre Show on Adult Swim. Um, here's a bit from this show. Uh, it's in the mode of the traditional crazy newspaper headline segment of a late night TV talk show. Oh, cool. Um, but it's a little bit different as, uh, Eric shows a variety of newspaper headlines, including one that, that looks like it might be in, in Arabic. Okay, what do we got? <clears throat> 
Killer's maps lead to victims' remains. What are we on a scavenger hunt, folks? It's a dark story, man. Yeah, I don't know if you should talk about it like that. Look at this one. Pastor's daughter struck as gun accidentally goes off. Hey, guys, at least we can leave church a little early and catch the rest of the football game. Am I right, fellas? I don't know if I like being associated with this. Oh, uh, what do we got here? Brata, 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 can't understand a word of it. It's my highest proofreader, guys. Come on. Let's be a little professional. He's <laughs> <Just> riffing. <laughs> we should be writing instead of riffing. That was a misstep. You think so? All of it. What do you mean? This is pretty low brow. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. Hey, remember when I did those jokes before? Yeah. Tight, right? No, I just told you that I didn't like that. <laughs> um, you have guests on the show. Um, what's it like when you have, um, you know, a person who is a, you know, genuine celebrity? I was just watching Tatiana Ali mm-hmm. um, on stage with you, and you are acting like a crazy person. Uh, yeah, well, do you prep them? What, how, we to prep, what extent we do you prep, prep them, them? As little as possible. Like, we got to be diplomatic about it. We can't have people running back to their publicist, uh, you know, throwing a hissy fit. But we want, like, genuine fear and genuine <laughs> confusion coursing through people because we don't That's want... That's what every talk show host wants. <laughs> yeah, we want, like, the opposite of a comfortable experience. And we want them to be genuinely uncomfortable so that they're not playing along or mugging for the camera because then it will just turn into sketch comedy and nothing will be at risk and it won't feel dangerous. We want them to be... Gen- we, like, we had this thing called the the hot seat. We, uh, we had this hidden heat duct that... Uh, that linked up to the back of Hannibal's chair and we had carpeting over it so you couldn't see it. And when the guests would sit down, we would turn it for certain guests. We would turn it on so that they'd be sweltering so that they'd just be like really hot and like slowly heat was like pumping into the, into the chair. We also had, um, we also did the meat seat where we would put like old clams underneath the chair so that it would just start reeking. We'd have the art department like sneak, like, throw old clams underneath the chair during the interview while the guest wasn't paying attention so that it would just like stink in the in the studio and it would just be like unexplained so we wanted like palpable those are things that you can't necessarily you can't see directly on television i mean i like that you have meat seat as a name yeah as though it's a bit that you're doing on yeah the show, no no we had a not. lot of things we had a lot <laughs> that's of just things. a weird thing that you thought of to torture a celebrity. yeah no yeah we were just torturing people uh it was really sadistic we um celebrities who by the way are generally being quite sweet about the whole thing. yeah yeah no i mean we thank everybody afterwards we send them flowers which maybe that might be even more psychological torture but uh <laughs> to be really nice and send people flowers afterwards. um but um that was like the only way to get like that was the maybe not the only way but the best way to get a genuine uh performance what I wonder is if you're trying to take off – I mean, Tatiana Ali is a slick lady, um, and you're trying to recreate in them some something that you are feeling. Yeah, 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 totally. I, you know what? I, we told her at the beginning, I was like um, 
I was like, you know, I played like this insane, rude, uh, um, inappropriate talk show host. The show kind of exists in its own universe. Uh, don't take anything I'm saying personal if I'm being a dick or anything. Uh, I'm just paying a, playing a madman. That's that's pretty much that's the speech that we give people in the green room, um, and then I'm just like, and do whatever you want. Um, no no but, mention oh, of the clams under their seat. No though. mention of the clams under the seat. We also don't mention to people. She told me afterwards that the thing that made her most uncomfortable. They think it's like happening in real time, like a real talk show. So they think the interview's five to ten minutes max. You know, not even eight minutes max. So, but the interview just goes on endlessly. It's like one giant forty-five minute take. So. That also makes the guest really uncomfortable because they're just like – they see no end in sight. It's just like this endless barrage of madness. Um, uh, So, yeah, we generally tell every guest very little because we want all the – we want everything to be a surprise. You know what I mean? We have a code word for when we roll cameras on – People, when they don't know, when they think we're just setting up some lighting or stuff like that, we'll use a lot of that footage because you will get people just sitting in the chair. Like we got one guy like noticed his fly was down and he's like zipping it up or like or like kind of subtly picking their nose, stuff like that where they don't think the camera's on. We'll like, use those as a, like a response. We'll like work in editing later. <laughs> so uh, or we'd film rehearsals um, and use that as the take because – People are not in their performing mode. They're like sitting in a chair, looking at the sides. Um, so, um, so why we learned a lot of stuff in them. When you do all of these things, why are you not a terrible person? Oh, I am a terrible person. I'm going straight to hell after the show. <laughs> but it, I, I will sacrifice my um, afterlife for this show. Eric Andre is the host of the Eric Andre Show, which you can catch on Adult Swim and online at adultswim.com. Word up. I love you. Every week on the show, we close with a cultural recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. I have to say that for a long time, I resisted salsa. I grew up in San Francisco, down the block from Caesar's Latin Palace, which was one of the biggest salsa clubs in the country, but I always associated it with, you know, white moms taking dance classes. Then the Buena Vista Social Club came out, and frankly, that didn't help. I basically just decided that it was for annoying Starbucks people, and that was that. Then a couple of years ago, I had a realization. I had gotten into Boogaloo, which is a sort of Latin-soul hybrid that was a precursor to salsa, and I was really enjoying it a lot. In fact, I was enjoying it so much that I just figured I should quit being such a jerk about salsa. Maybe I should actually try it. And standing in the Latin aisle of a huge record store here in L.A., I made what turned out to be a great decision. I bought the Fania All-Stars live at Yankee Stadium Volume 2. I would have bought Volume 1, but the store was out. And then I listened to it on loop for about three months straight. (laughs) 
It's a live record with a huge band. And what's amazing about it to me is that each piece of this outfit is doing something different. Nobody is playing the background. And every piece fits together perfectly until these two dozen parts are somehow a driving, throbbing whole. They're living embodiments of polyrhythm. This band, if you ask me, which you haven't, is an expression of the best of America. These guys, all different colors from countries all over the hemisphere, each bringing a little piece of where they're from to New York and creating something new and vital and just amazing. The album's basically one long highlight, but there's one song that stands out. By the time the Fania All-Stars hit Yankee Stadium in the mid-70s, Celia Cruz had been recording and performing for almost 25 years. The band was becoming legendary, but Cruz already was. Her one track on this album, recorded when she was in her mid-40s, became her signature song. It's called Bemba Colora, and I don't think there is a more ripping pop performance on record. The lyrics are a little tough to parse. It's basically part love song, part protest song, and really is just an expression of raw force. And the song feels like a religious ritual. It builds and builds and spins and spins. It clatters and drives towards a crazy ecstasy. Somehow it's deeply grounded and completely frenzied. And then at the end of 10 minutes, 10 minutes of this, she leaves. For a second, you're catching your breath. And then the crowd starts pumping, and the band keeps pumping, and you need her back on stage. comes back and she sings for a couple minutes more which when you're listening that is all you want she gets an encore for a single song in the middle of a two-hour concert and when it happens it makes perfect sense One of the great blessings of music is that it can take you out of yourself. It can carry you outside the walls you've built in your mind and let you revel for a moment in a breadth of feeling that you'd never reach without that beat. And I'm glad I let the Fania All-Stars pick me up and carry me there. Ahora mismo yo me voy con la 
That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. You should like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne. All of those words in one long string to get special updates. You can also find us on Twitter at bullseye. And you can find me on Twitter at Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.